This is Dr. Rob Harder with the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, making your world better. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? What are the biggest challenges? What are the biggest obstacles? How should nonprofits fundraise in an economy that is constantly changing? All of these reasons combined led me to start this show. And it's my hope that through this series, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear from effective leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy the show as together we hear how they are making their world better. Change is the one constant in our world, right? Most of us reluctantly acknowledge this truth, but perhaps never more than this past year. We all have been through so much change and we're still going through more change. So how can you as a leader adapt effectively to our ever-changing environment, especially as it relates to your organization's culture and leadership challenges? Well, today's guests have many years of experience between them, and they're full-time consultants who are dedicated to raising up effective leaders for today's nonprofits. My guests today are Dave Jones and Phyllis Hockett, co-founders of Pathway Associates. I think you're going to really enjoy today's show. Well, David Phillips, it is great to have you on the show today. I thought we'd start out by talking about trends, the trends that you're seeing as consultants. Now, when it comes to this pandemic and how nonprofits were impacted by it, how has COVID permanently impacted nonprofits, either for the good or for the bad? What's the trend line moving forward also into the next few years? What would you say to that? Well, you know, I think there are some trends going on, but I think most of them started before COVID and COVID may have just made them more pronounced, brought them out in a fuller degree. Phyllis and I have worked together for over 20 years now in the nonprofit sector, and Phyllis before that, uh, for about 10 years prior to that. So she's got great perspective. But a couple of things, you know, 20 years ago, you know, there was a very solid nonprofit community. But in the years since, I think they have really professionalized in a lot of ways. Management has become much more professional. Development has become much more professional, and those trends have continued right up into and through the pandemic to today. We're seeing a lot more MPAs behind uh, the CEO, you know, the leaders, and so forth. So that's one big trend. COVID, I think, has also brought out a trend in terms of people reflecting more. I think you know the nonprofit community, in, in my opinion has always suffered from being under-resourced. There's so much need out there, so much we can do, so much we want to do, but there's limited funding. And so what we tend to do as nonprofit organizations is pile more stuff on the people that we have. And so you may be the, the CEO, but you're picking up a whole bunch of other stuff as well. You may be the development director, but you're also serving as the publicity person. And the CEO does everything. And so what I think I'm seeing, at least, is that over time, and especially now with the pandemic and staffing problems, we're seeing a lot of burnout. And a lot of people are sitting back and saying, gee, this has been tough. And now I've got a little bit of opening to think about this. Do I want to jump back into that? So I think that's part of what we're seeing behind people transitioning. You're seeing just like you're seeing in corporate America, there's a lot of transition going on. I don't think the nonprofit community gets as much attention in that regard, 
But a lot of it's a lot of it's just simply a reaction to burnout. I'll be interested to hear what Phil thinks about that. Well, that's a great uh, setup, sort of to set the stage for diving deeper into to some of these areas because I do think that the nonprofit sector has always been resource starved. And I think that has been an issue for the more than 30 years I've I've been working in this sector. The pandemic has only exacerbated that and really brought to light some of the issues that were perhaps simmering on the back burner or sitting you know, just under the carpet where no one really wanted to pick it up and take a hard look at it. What's happening, I think, is that we're experiencing a time of transformative change because of all these factors. And so what happens is that whenever you experience change, whether it's personal, organizational, in a a business, it's hard. It's difficult for people to go through change. And so unless leadership, and that means senior leadership staff or board members, unless they really are very forward thinking about that change and managing it, it can be extraordinarily difficult. And you see things like you just referred to, Dave, you see burnout, you see succession issues. You see problems with the sector that we're seeing right now in the Intermountain West, where we don't have enough really well-qualified, for example, development directors. Now, it's interesting. Well, I I appreciate all that you've shared. And maybe we can drill down a little bit on the fundraising and development side, because you both mentioned that one. Interesting, you said in the Intermountain area that there's a real lack of strong development uh, directors uh, with a, a lack of training, sounds like. In light of COVID, and perhaps sounds like the overall downward trajectory that you already mentioned, Dave, and I know there's been other people on our show before talking about well before COVID, there was this downward trend in giving towards nonprofits already before the pandemic. Do you believe in light of all of that, that for nonprofits, is it time to completely restructure how we raise funds for our organizations? What do you think about that when it comes to development? I don't think it's time to completely restructure. I think there are basics that we will build on. There's new technologies coming out. You know, the way we used to do things, you know, you'd send out mailers and stuff like that 20, 30 years ago and wait for stuff to come in, build a list, you know, and all that. Things have come a long ways since then. Uh, Now there's a big emphasis, and there should be even more, on major gift giving and building relationships, personal relationships, asking for annual gifts in a large sum that can be renewed and and stuff like that. The the biggest transformation, I think, has been in the area of events. And, you know, if if you were a board member and the CEO says, we got to figure out some more ways to make money, what are we going to do? Everybody say, well, let's have a golf tournament, you know, or let's, let's have another event, you know, that kind of thing. And I think what you're seeing today is a recognition that those events are really labor intensive and they are cost intensive and your return on investment isn't that great unless you've been doing it for 30 years and you're just cash, you know, milking the cow at this point. But I think there's a, a, a shift in how people are approaching those things, the technology, you know, that allows you to do advanced bidding and things like that. Those things are really revolutionizing how we do events. And I think, I think COVID, the pandemic, has changed a lot of thinking 
about how do we do events going forward? Do people really want to go out in the middle of the you know of the evening and you know hang out for a while, have a couple of drinks, and eat a dinner, and listen to some speeches and stuff like? Not so much anymore. You know, Dan, I I I really like what you just said about the words return announcement, and I've been trying to teach this for the last two decades that. Whatever you decide to do, and, and clearly the way that we're raising money is is adapting uh, to the circum- external circumstances, but to take the time in a really practical way to say, what does it actually cost us to put on a golf tournament? Are we doing this to raise money? Are we doing this to raise awareness in the community? You know, what is our return on investment? If you are uh, really focused on a grant writing program from foundation, private foundations and corporate foundations, what is the return on that investment? What does it cost you in staff time, in board member time, perhaps, to actually write those grants? And then once you get them, Again, to to something you mentioned, Dave, to maintain and cultivate and really nurture that relationship so that it becomes a long-term grant opportunity. Uh, What's the return on investment for major gift programs? I mean, clearly those large dollar amounts typically are, are the best return on an organization's development program. I think that we adapt and we change according to the technologies that are available to us in a development program, and we need to be open to that. But I think there's some basics like return on investment that don't change. And I think there's some basics like how do, how do you build a great personal relationship with whomever is your donor, whether it's the corporate giving officer or an individual who makes a $20,000 gift to your organization. I mean, I think, I don't think those change. Well, excellent insights. Well, shifting from fundraising to another critical piece of nonprofit work is advocacy. And I believe that a lot of nonprofits struggle to know the balance between the right amount of advocacy without becoming too political in their work. So what advice would you give to nonprofit leaders when it comes to advocacy? You know, what's that healthy balance for nonprofits when it comes to this issue? Well, I think the IRS uh, makes it kind of clear <laughs> what you what you can and can't do. That's a good point. That's true. Beyond right. that, yeah. <laughs> so that's that's number one is uh, is to be mindful of uh, you know all of the IRS limitations based on the kind of nonprofit that you are registered as. But I also think that one of the most important things nonprofits do is to advocate for the mission. Now, we do that in many different ways, right? We advocate with our donors, with the broader community. We advocate with uh, government officials. And I don't think you can ever do too much in terms of informing that broader community of who you are and what you do, because that is fundamental to being able to raise money. I mean, people have to know who you are in order to become engaged and want to financially support you. Now, we could sort of 
break that up, Rob, into a couple of different sections of you know advocacy within our donor community or or with uh, in particular in the government sector. I guess, Dave, you want to talk about government? Well, sure. So I think advocacy just depends on the nature of your mission, too. And the quality of the advocacy you do is going to change depending on what your purpose is. You may be a, a modern dance company or something, and you're going to advocate for modern dance, of course, by definition. But you're probably not going to show up that much except with other arts groups at the legislature, for example, to argue for more money in the POPs program or something. But, you know, a different organization, I've got an example of what I'm working with right now. This organization is focused on impacting the laws in, in, you know, in states and, uh, and even at the federal level that have to do with what's going on in terms of climate change, advocating for cleaner energy, for example. And so their whole deal is working with legislators and trying to influence them, trying to get them to do things that will be positive in terms of leaving less of a carbon imprint. And so they're extremely professional about this, and they are extremely successful as well. And that is because they have not taken the political dimension. They've really argued on the policy, and their strategy is we do not get in people's faces. We accept where they are right now. We attempt to give them good information and show them models of what can be done, that type of thing. They've done a remarkable job over the last 10 years and have actually moved the needle. And so you know, they are an advocacy organization almost by definition, whereas others may not be in as intense that way. Uh, no, it's a really good, um, important distinction, as you mentioned. It really comes down to your mission. And that you actually gave one example. I was going to just ask that. What's an, another example of an organization that's doing advocacy really well within the boundaries? Obviously, the IRS has laid out, but you know, really tying their mission into moving the needle, as you mentioned, Dave, is there another organization that has done it well and what have they done to do it so well? Are you talking about in the state of... Yeah, state of Utah. I know a lot of you, you consult obviously with a lot of nonprofits here in Utah, but if you have experiences outside of Utah, that's fine too. I have one. Absolutely, Phyllis, go for it, yeah. And I think this is advocacy on an interest level. And this organization is called Girl Rising. It's uh, an international organization. And that what they're trying to do is build a movement for girls and women's education, health, basic rights. And so their advocacy work is through governments, it's through all those political figures, but it's also through these mass approaches to getting a lot of on-the-ground people together. And I think that's something that's been very successful, whether it's in the political sphere or within nonprofits over the past 10 years, is to build those really strong, deep, grassroots advocacy efforts. And so it's not just you, the organization, taking this on, but you build a whole cadre of other people who really believe deeply in what you're trying to do. Girl Rising has advocates now in many different countries, as well as the United States, and, the, and they have, through education programs in the United States and, and through teachers and students, built a remarkable network. So 
this example really demonstrates what you can do if you build an advocacy team around you. I think advocacy also is enhanced by collaboration. And, uh, you know, looking at some of the most successful advocates, I think, in, in the Utah community, for example, are the domestic violence shelters. And they all operate under the heading. I mean, they work together collaboratively. I mean, sometimes somebody from Salt Lake needs to go to Park City and somebody from Park City goes to Davis County. But, you know, they work together as a coalition. I think it's the Domestic Violence Coalition of Utah to approach the legislature uh, with issues that they think are foremost and need addressing. It may be, you know, a streamlined approach to getting funding from, from counties or something like that. You know, we work in the area of capital campaigns and the legislature, thanks to these groups, raising awareness of an issue, has done a remarkable job of, you know, supporting campaigns. I mean, one in, in, in Park City uh, I'm thinking of and one in Davis County that I'm thinking of, the YWCA in Salt Lake City. You know, they are investing millions, and that happens because of advocacy. And it's not something you can just bail in and start telling somebody about it. It takes place over a, a series of years. Same thing happens in the area of services for people with disabilities. And so these groups, they may operate separately. They may fundraise separately. In some ways, you may even say they compete. But they come together under the umbrella of an issue and advocate for better policy and community support. We'll be right back. Hey friends, thanks so much for listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast. If this is your first time listening to us, I want to make sure you're aware of a whole group of other episodes with fascinating guests that I previously interviewed. Just go to our website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. There you'll find numerous interviews of nonprofit leaders from all over the country and even from different countries, all trying to make their world better. I also want to encourage you to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with others. This will help us get this great content out to more nonprofit leaders just like you. Now, finally, if you want to get my monthly email update that contains more resources in addition to these episodes, it's really easy. Just go to my website at nonprofitleadershippodcast.org and simply type your email address in the top right-hand box, and you'll be added to our monthly email update. And this way, you'll never miss any of the interviews or extra content from this show. And if you have any questions or comments, do not hesitate to email me. Thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. Uh, that's a really good practical example of collaboration and how that you can actually double your impact when it comes to advocacy by working with others. And I, yeah, I'm very familiar with what domestic violence um, organizations are doing here locally and you know throughout the state. So great example. All right, let's move to culture. You know, I've learned a lot. We've had people on the show again. There's books out there now that are pointing out the fact that so many people when it comes to joining an organization, joining a nonprofit, and actually for businesses, this is also the case according to the research, that people are really looking at culture more closely than ever. So how do EDs or CEOs create the right kind of culture for their organization? Do you feel like it has to do primarily with the hiring process or maybe they join an organization, they become the CEO of an organization, they need to turn around the culture uh, because somehow the organization has really developed a negative or even a toxic culture. How do they go about doing that? I know there's a lot in there, but talk about culture. Why is it so important and how can you turn it around if you're a leader of a, a negative culture? Leadership is so critically important. Uh, no matter 
what the time is, if it's a pandemic or not, if it's a crisis or not. And leadership in creating culture has changed and grown over time. But I think there's some real basics that are involved in creating culture. And one, uh, for example, is respecting your employees and really respecting what they can bring to the table, engaging them in process, engaging them in developing the culture of the organization. Used to be, you know, a long time ago, that it was a primarily top-down cultural organization, right? So for companies, for nonprofits. And more and more what I'm seeing is that, yes, there's a CEO, there, there's someone like that, but it's almost more circular. You're, everyone's sitting around the table together saying, okay, we have this problem. How are we as a leadership team or as a board and leadership team going to solve this problem together? How do we build culture together given our mission, given the way that our values put forward uh, how we want to operate it in the world. Right. It's almost like you can't just all be about money, right? That's the concern. We're here for the mission, but you need money to further the mission. And so, yeah, that's a challenge. Dave, and, mm-hmm. any thoughts on that, Dave, on culture? Yeah, I think, I think Phyllis really raises a good point with this culture of philanthropy. And I think I think the culture has to, in some ways, also in well, in many ways, has to infuse the board, and the board, in some ways, infuses the, the organization with with the culture. So, I mean, I remember an organization I got involved with, you know, a long time ago. But it was before I ever got involved. This organization was on death's doorstep, literally. That's a very well known organization. Wow. Okay. I, I won't say more than it, toxic, but although mm-hmm. they'd be pleased to know today, you know, it took a CEO change. And they, you know, the board had to step up and say, this is working, we got to switch. And they brought in the right person who knew what had to be done because this organization was sucking wind. You know, they didn't have enough resources. And so she immediately starts recruiting new board members and thanking others for their service of many years, too many years, and putting them on an advisory board, you know, something, you know, kind of the lateral arabesque. And building up a real strong group. But the most important thing she did is she asked a lot of them. She asked them to do a lot. It wasn't just come and sit on this board and be around every month and, you know, we'll talk and tell you what's going on. She asked them all to play a role in fundraising. And yeah, you need your attorney, you need your person that knows about accounting and all that stuff, but they can also be good fundraisers too. And she doubled the size of the board from something like 15 to 30. And suddenly she had a machine and that machine, you know, just drove things forward in terms of resources, which enabled her to really change up what was going on with the culture among the staff, begin to pay better, focus on mission, do a lot of things that needed to be done that just would never happen if they couldn't have put the resources together. So I think that culture of philanthropy on the board, especially, 
is terribly important. I'm really glad you mentioned that. And, you know, let's talk about leadership some more. I know I've talked to both of you outside the show, and you have a lot of leadership experience between the two of you. And now when you're in a position as a consultant or a consulting company, you're investing in leaders constantly. And I'm curious, do you believe that if we're going to really truly be successful in addressing these huge issues of today, even before COVID, but certainly now post-COVID, as we move, uh, hopefully moving through COVID, do we need to really start changing our styles or methods of leadership? And if so, what are the most important leadership methods that it takes in your mind to bring about these social changes to address these big issues that we're facing as a culture? That's a huge question. (laughs) I love it. I thought we only have, yeah, I mean, what, five minutes to answer that? Come on, you can solve this. <laughs> what, what strikes me, given our, our our time limitation here, Rob, is that I'm on a board right now where we've just done uh, an evaluation of the CEO. She is extraordinary, uh, just a, an amazing leader in her whole, in her own right. However, you know, what can we do to help assure that moving forward, she continues to have the skills that she needs to remain that great leader, that she's adaptable and nimble and well-trained and has an excellent relationship or continues to have an excellent relationship with her staff and board. And so I think about leadership not only in terms of uh, maybe a more negative kind of situation, but also one that's that's developing the people who are already our leaders into what they need to become uh, as the world throws all kinds of different challenges at them. And if it's not the pandemic, it's going to be something else. You know, we've all lived through financial crises as, as well. So I, I think there's a that perspective that's also critically important as leaders. And and Dave and I were laughing a little bit and were very flattered that you would say you know, that we're leaders in our consulting company. But we also feel like we have walked into those leadership roles because we have learned so much over the years. And we've had great mentors and we've had great teachers and people around us who have been exemplary. And so it hasn't been a particular model, Rob, but it's been amazing people around us. Well, when I think of leaders that in the nonprofit sector that I think have been truly extraordinary, they all seem to have a couple of qualities. And whether you can acquire those qualities or whether they're inborn or or what it's probably a mix of both but i think of first of all it's got to be somebody who has a, the ability to envision what we need to become and not be shy about that the ability to envision and be bold take big steps what's it going to take to thrive not just survive and that's an important quality the other quality is the ability to motivate people such that they never want to disappoint you, not because you're going to be so mad, but because they want you to succeed, you know? And so those leaders are the ones who inspire action and excellence. And another quality, every single one I can think of had, you know, the ability for, you know, to, to be funny, you know, the ability to be lighthearted. And it doesn't always have to be this serious grind. You know, there's some 
fun moments and they figure out ways to do things that are fun with the group that helps to build that culture also. Oh, I love those good additions there. Well, and now I always like to ask this question, my guest, when you think about your own leadership, what keeps the two of you sharp as leaders? Perhaps the habits you do, the practices that you regularly invest in that have most shaped you as leaders? Oh, that's a great question, Rob. But, uh, I think about the people that have been influential, the choices that you make about the people you surround yourself with who can be those mentors or teachers, I think is always important. I, I would suspect, Dave, and I'm going to speak for both of us for a second here, but please correct me, <laughs> that, you know, we we have set out from day one sitting in a coffee shop in Salt Lake City and subscribed to a set of values of how we wanted to run this company, how we wanted to interact with our clients. And that's really guided us. And I I think that that's one of the hallmarks of leadership, uh, deciding who you are and what you want to be and sticking to that. I like that, Dave. Yeah, what do you think? Yeah, I think one of the things that is really important is never to believe that you know all you need to know and to realize that you're always going to be learning new stuff. I mean, how many clients have we worked with? I mean, I think I've been involved with 40 different capital campaigns. Every single one of them has been different and every one I have learned something from and have been able to you know, develop processes around that. But each one, that new one that comes along, I'm, I'm still learning some new things because things are changing. So you've got to, as a leader, I think, and I think Phyllis and I both have this, I think as leaders, you have to be able to recognize that you're never going to know it all. You're never going to have all the answers. And yeah, you're the consultant, but you know, you can, you got plenty to learn along the way and you're going to learn from your clients. And I, I even tell them that up front. I think it's important that they realize they're partially in a position of teaching me. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we've, over the years going on, 22 years, we've worked with over 300 discrete organizations. and That's impressive, over 300. And uh, all the way from facilitation to strategic planning to development programs to capital campaigns. And I completely agree with Dave coming into a working relationship with what a Buddhist would call beginner's mind you know, really saying, okay, who are you? And how can what I've learned support you and your organization and having a real conversation about that and then putting, of course, some very strict process behind it. But I I agree with that. I think we're constantly learning. I love that. You know, we've had people on the show talk about what the one of the top traits of a leader is a learner constantly learning, always learning. And I love that, that uh, we can close on that. Now, I think my listeners are going to be hearing this and want to connect potentially with the two of you or learn a little bit more about Pathways Associates. Maybe talk about how, what's the best way for them to find out more about your company and the two of you. I think they can go to our website, worldwideweb.pathwayassoc.com. 
David and Phyllis, thank you so much for sharing your insights. Really, really good. As we said on the outset, there, we could have this for another hour or two because there's so much uh, information you've learned and you've passed on and there's more to talk about. But thank you for sharing uh, your insights. Uh, very helpful today. Rob, thank you. You've created a really interesting conversation and I appreciate that very much. Hey friends, well, I wanted you to know that this podcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Google Podcasts, and wherever you listen to other podcasts. I also wanna encourage you to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with others. This will actually help us get this great content out to more nonprofit leaders just like you. You can also join the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast community, find other resources and interviews of past guests all on my website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Well, thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep making your world better.